If you have a Bible, open up to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. We are continuing our series, and if you don't have a Bible with you, you can look on the screens. We'll have the scripture up there. We're continuing our series through uh, the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and we are in this series called Dwell. So we're talking about how the great story of God is that he desires to dwell with his people forever. And such a pivotal part of that storyline happens at the very close, or at least close to the very beginning of the Bible, and just these first few books of the Bible after Genesis and Exodus. And so we've been looking at story after story after story of God's desire to dwell with his people. But now in the middle of numbers, we're seeing the people's rebellion and how time after time after time, they just can't seem to get it right. They cannot seem to muster up the love for God that they need. And so we're going to continue uh, looking at that situation today in just a second. But let me pray for us and let's ask God to bless us and help us understand his word today. Jesus, we love you. We're so grateful that we get to be here and worship you today, Lord, with each other. We're thankful for the church. We're thankful that we have fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who can come together and worship, Lord, who can come together in community, and Lord, be equipped to live faithfully in this world together. God, it's your word and it's your power that enables all of this. Lord Jesus, you are why we are here, to worship you, to learn from your word, and to draw closer to you. So would you do that? Would you do that in our hearts, and would you do that in our minds this morning? It's in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. There is a quote by Winston Churchill hanging on a canvas in my office. And uh, I look at this quote often when I'm sitting at my desk. I'll look up at it and I'm encouraged. I'm inspired. The quote says that success is not final, failure is not fatal, it is the courage to continue that counts. And so, you know, I preach a bad sermon, I go in there, I look up at the, I'm just saying, yes, you know, failure's not fatal. Um, But I I look up at this quote occasionally, and it encourages me and inspires me because I believe deep down that that is a true statement, that success is not final, failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that really counts in many aspects of life. But maybe you have something similar, right? So maybe you have something similar at your house or in your office that you look up at hanging on the wall, and it encourages you. So maybe it's a family photo, right? Maybe it's a picture of your family from years ago that you look at and you're encouraged because deep down you believe that that meant something to you. You believe that that was an important moment in your life or you believe that family is important and so you value family, right? Or perhaps uh, you have some other kind of object or perhaps even a painting or a piece of artwork that you look at And it inspires you because you believe that there's value in it. You believe that it can change the way you feel and the way you think and the way you live, perhaps, in that moment because of the inspiration and the encouragement. It brings peace. It brings comfort simply by looking at it. Well, today, we're going to see that illustrated in a dramatic way where the people of Israel just look at something and it changes their lives forever. Not only does it bring comfort physically, it brings comfort spiritually. Just by looking at this thing. What is this thing? Well, Numbers 21 tells us. 
Numbers 21, this is a rather short story, but boy, oh boy, is it an important one in the Bible. And you'll see why as we get through it. So let's read this story together, and uh, I'm going to make some comments as we go through it, and then we'll talk about some points at the end. All right, so Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, the people of Israel are in the wilderness still, wandering around under their 40-year sentence, right, because they disobeyed God, they rebelled against God, and so God condemned them and judged them to serve, or to wander, I should say, uh, in the wilderness for 40 years, and so we're actually now at the end of that period. And so here's what happens. Chapter 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they sent out by the way, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. Shocker, right? And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, if this is starting to sound redundant, (laughs) it's because it is, right? It's the same thing, it seems like, week after week in this series, as we're looking at these different stories and numbers, the people essentially keep saying the same thing. Hey, Moses, uh, we're hungry right? Hey, we're thirsty. And this manna, right? They're, they're talking about the food that God miraculously provided for them every morning on the ground that called manna, which means what is it, right? They didn't even know what it was, but it was nutritious, all right? And it kept them alive. And it was a great provision from God. But now they're like, all we have is this worthless food. That's all we've got, right? We want a different menu. We're still hungry. We don't see enough water for us. Help. Let's just go back to Egypt, right? It's the same thing every week, which shows us that they keep proving over and over and over that they will not be faithful to the Lord, that they never will be, that they cannot be. I mean, that's what it appears. They just can't do it. They cannot be fully faithful and obedient to God. Left to themselves, they keep proving over and over that they will not love and worship God. Given the choice, they're going cho- to choose themselves instead of loving and worshiping God who loves them, right? And gives them everything they need. They do not appreciate his goodness. They don't appreciate his care. But notice this. Normally, normally when they start complaining, they just go to Moses, right? They pester the mess out of Moses, right? But look what they do here. No, they go to God. Did you notice that? Verse five, this time, They speak out against God. They complain to God directly. They're going straight straight to God and blaming him for their impatience. They're blaming God for their ungratefulness. Now, how will God respond? How is God, a holy God, going to respond when the people he created to love him just essentially spit in his face and say, we don't want it? We don't want you. We don't want what you've given us. We're tired of it. How is God going to respond to these false accusations against him? Verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents, snakes, among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now, on this occasion, the Lord brings wrath 
He brings judgment on their sinful rebellion. And listen, that's what they deserve. Now, we may read this in our modern context, in our modern minds, and think, this seems harsh. Like, I don't know that that's the kind of God that I'm comfortable worshiping and giving my life to, one that would send snakes among the people to actually bite them, right, and kill them. This seems harsh to us. Now, why is God doing this? You see, we may say, well, isn't God, isn't God a God of love and mercy? I mean, we sing a lot about that. Yes, those things are true. God is a God of love. He is a God of mercy, but that doesn't cancel out his other attributes or characteristics. In other words, as we've seen in this sermon series, a holy God, a God who is without sin, a God who is perfect, all good things that we know flow from his source of truth and goodness. He is the source of truth and goodness in, for all things, for all of creation, right? So a holy, perfect, good, pure God cannot tolerate sin and evil and wickedness. He can't tolerate it. All evil and wickedness and sin in this world and his creation must be dealt with. It must be punished. It can't just be swept under a rug as as if we just pretend that it doesn't exist or it's not there. No, a holy God, the one true God who is perfect in all his ways is not just going to sweep the evil under a rug. He is going to deal with it or else he is not God or else he is not holy or else he is not just and right and true. Now, as Indiana Jones would say, Snakes. Why's it got to be snakes, right? Now, this is literally what nightmares are made of, right? I mean, some of you have a true phobia of snakes, and you have, maybe you've had a dream sort of like this, where you were one of the Israelites, right? And listen, I know some of you are like, oh, you know, but if you see a snake in your yard, it's probably a good one, and you should let it live. Listen, I have seen more than enough evidence in the Bible that all snakes are bad, okay? It's pretty clear. So I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Christian uh, author Lauren Chandler says, she talks about the symbolism of, of snakes in this story, and this is actually pretty interesting. She says, ancient Egyptian texts featured stories of fiery serpents, snakes, protecting Pharaoh and Egypt. So they were actual like emblems of Egypt. So just like we have the bald eagle here in America as an emblem, well, that's what the snakes were in ancient Egypt. Now, think about that. These people keep complaining and saying they want to go back to Egypt. And so what does God send as a visible reminder that that is the worst idea they've ever had? The people, she says, the people thought that relief and salvation would be found in Egypt. So instead, the Lord showed the inevitable destruction that comes from trusting in anything or anyone besides him. So that's why it's snakes. They represent Egypt. They represent sin. They represent the destruction that these people say they want in their lives so foolishly. Yet, God's discipline, which is what this is, God's discipline here, his judgment here, produces its desired effect. It awakens the people to the reality of their sin. It wakes them up. The ones who survive the snake bites, 
the ones who are terrified of getting bit and trying to avoid the snakes as they are suffering in pain. Those who've been bitten as they're dying from venomous snake poison flowing through their bloodstream, they finally wake up and realize what they've done. And so they cry out to Moses for help. Look at verse seven. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now God, God is going to use this as a means to bring his people to repentance. In other words, to turn, to change their minds, their souls. Their souls are far more important than their physical pain and discomfort. And God knows that. He knows that their eternal state is more important than their physical state. So he will provide a way. He will provide a way for them to escape death. He's going to provide a way for them to escape his holy judgment. And it's a very interesting and unique way. Look at this, verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, so after Moses prayed, to God to stop the serpents, to stop this venom from killing them. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. Interesting. Now, at first glance, this may seem very odd. This may seem un, like an unusual means of bringing healing to these people. Moses is going to actually make a snake out of bronze material, put it on a pole, and hold it up for everyone to look at. And if they look, they're saved. If they look, they're healed. They don't die. Christian theologian Raymond Brown says, the Lord chose this unusual means to convince the people that their healing came from him alone. He, note, he notes that if, if, God, if God had simply just removed the snakes, right? if God had just driven the snakes out somehow, then the people may have seen that happening and thought, oh, well, they're just migrating somewhere else, right? It's the snake's decision to leave. Or he says, if God had provided some kind of ointment to apply to the injection area on the skin where they were bit, then the people put, could probably have attributed the healing to the medicine itself and just kind of left God out of the picture. Now you see, the only way the only way these people could finally see that it was God's power and it was his power alone that would save them from the grips of death. The only way they could see that was to have them simply look up and be healed to prove that it was the power of God. Just look and be healed. Just look and escape death, really, for real. Now, 
this short episode that we just read, perhaps better than any other story in the Old Testament, can really serve as an illustration or maybe even a microcosm of the human condition and God's redemptive plan for mankind. So we're going to look at that today. Essentially, we're going to see how our story, yours and mine, our story fits into Numbers 21. But let me warn you, it begins with very bad news. The first thing we see in Numbers 21, which is also true of our story today as a human race, number one is our hopeless state. Our hopeless state. You see, this was not the first time that serpents or a serpent, a snake, wreaked havoc on people in the Bible. It was actually a serpent who introduced sin to the human race in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, where the first humans lived with God in his presence. God dwelt among his people, Adam and Eve, in the Garden. Yet a serpent, whom we call Satan, Satan, the serpent, the great ancient serpent, introduced sin to us humans, but we have all, today, me and you, we have all freely chosen to go along with a rebellion against God. So our sin, and essentially you can define sin as anything against God's good design, Right? So anything that God designed the world, any way God designed your life to be, right? we see in the scriptures the way we are supposed to love and worship God and serve him, love others and serve them, right? function in this world in different kinds of relationships, any kind of departure from God's good design is what the Bible calls sin. And so our sin, our rebellion against God, our vocal and physical and mental thoughts that say, we don't want what you have for us. We want to create our own way of doing things. We don't want to submit to your authority. No, we want to do it ourselves. Any kind of sin in our lives makes us unclean and unworthy of God's love and acceptance. Because again, as we've already said, he's holy, he's perfect, and he cannot be in the presence of sinful people. So we were created to love and worship God, but our sin literally separates us from living in his presence as it did Adam and Eve. They were banished from the garden. They could no longer live in the presence of God. It makes us unworthy. And that's the first subpoint we see here. In our hopeless state, we are unworthy. Left to ourselves in our sinful state, we are hopeless, just like the children of Israel wandering around the wilderness, making the same mistakes over and over and over again. It becomes redundant. Why? Because we are unworthy. It's just natural to who we are as a human race. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one's meeting the standard. Like no one, nobody, nobody you know, you aren't doing it. I'm not doing it. Nobody is living up to the perfect standard of God. We're all falling short. Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. 
And like ancient Israel, our lives prove this to be true, right? Think about them in this story and all the others. Like Israel, we are impatient. We're impatient with God. We may blame him for our own problems. We complain. We're ungrateful. Like Israel, we have a wrong and limited perspective on the events that are occurring in our lives, right? We try to define them on our terms and we try to try to think of why things are happening without any recollection of who God is or any filtering through his promises and his word. We're fearful, right? This makes us fearful when we try to define our lives on our terms. We become fearful. We lie about things to impress. We exaggerate to keep the attention off of our own shortcomings. Israel did these things in the wilderness. We do these things too. These are all characteristics of trying to live a life without God, not in his presence. It's really a life of self-absorption. It's just all about us. And ironically, you know, this is, this, this is highly ironic. The, the, more, the more we try to make our lives about ourselves, the worse our lives inevitably get. Because if you're only focused on yourself, right, and you only want to make yourself look better in front of others, the opposite eventually happens. Because people will see that you are hurting others to further your own self, for your own selfish gain, that you're dishonoring God to make yourself look better. It all comes back in the end. It all comes back and our reputation fails in the end when we try to make our lives about ourselves. This all proves, all of this, just like Israel then and just like us today, it all proves that we are truly unworthy of God's love and acceptance. But the second part of that, right? Not only are we unworthy, we are unable We are unable to love God. In this wilderness, Israel proves over and over that they will never be and they cannot be fully faithful and obedient. But again, our lives are the same. This is true collectively. This is true individually, right? I mean, just think about that collectively. If the human race was actually capable of creating a perfect world with perfect love and harmony, don't you think we've had enough time to figure that out by now? Right? I mean, why, haven't, why hasn't it happened yet? Like, why do we keep failing at that? Have you ever thought about that? Like, there's been ample time for us to get it right, all right? There's been ample time for us to figure out how a drive through is supposed to work. We just still, just still, you know, Chick-fil-A got it right, but everybody else is just struggling, right? We just can't get it right, right? If we are capable, if we are capable of loving each other selflessly on our own power and strength, why don't we do that? <laughs> like, why don't we love each other the way God has commanded? Why have we not figured that out? on our own lives, right, as a human race and as individuals prove that we are unable to love God perfectly and really at all and love others left to our own abilities. So ultimately, ultimately that means that we just can't save ourselves. Just can't do it. We cannot dig our way out of the spiritual separation that we've created between us and God. We cannot dig our way out of the spiritual dilemma that we're in. We are separated from God. We do not deserve his love. And Ephesians 2 tells us that salvation is not a result of works. So there's nothing we can do. Whatever good we can muster up now and then, it's just not going to be good enough. It's not on God's level. A perfectly holy God requires perfect obedience for someone to enter into his presence. That was true in the tabernacle. Right? They, must have been, they must be cleansed. They had to go through a ceremony. Right? And it's true in heaven now. We are unable to love God on our own, left to ourselves. We fail. We fail. We fail every time. And there's even worse news. 
Second thing we see out of this story, our own story in Numbers 21, is our deserved penalty. Our deserved penalty. Look at verse 6 again. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. So they, they get bitten, and what happens? They actually die. Many of them died. So like Israel here, we say, oh, well, I don't deserve that. No, we do. We rightly deserve God's holy wrath against our rebellion, against him, against sin. The people complained and blamed Moses, right? And this time they blamed God himself for this predicament before the snakes even got there. They were already blaming God about just their food and the menu that they had, right? But this only further proves their inability to even see their own faults, to see their own sin. We are also quick to blame others for our own sins, aren't we? But what we must realize is that we are responsible. Your spouse is not why you struggle with anger. Your kids are not why you have a hard time getting your ducks in a row, right? It is you. It's me. We have no one to blame for our own shortcomings and sinful nature except ourselves, our own actions. We are responsible for our choice to not honor God with our lives by not putting him first in our hearts. Now, that's a serious offense. As we've seen, it's a serious offense to the one who made you, who loves you, who created you for himself, who designed you to bring him glory with your life, who gave you everything you need to thrive. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. So the proper payment, the only payment, and that's what, we, what, that's what you got to see here. You're going to miss the good news if you don't see this bad news. The proper payment for Israel then and for us now, the only payment for our rebellion against God is a death penalty. Why? Because we choose life without God. Therefore, the payment is our life. The payment is your life. So if you want to find your life, you'll lose it. So Jesus put it, the payment for our sin is eternal separation from God, eternal death. As we've already mentioned, that's fair. It's just because God is fair. God is just. He wouldn't be God if he wasn't. That's the bad news. We are separated from God and there's nothing we can do. All right, you ready for some good news? Number three, there's something else we see here and it is amazing. We see our undeserved salvation. In Numbers 21, we see an undeserved salvation. This is true for us. The first aspect of this, there's two aspects here. The first one is that it's by grace alone. God, God was under no obligation to provide a way for these people to escape the deathly poison of the serpent's bite. Yet he did. In fact, sending these snakes among them was probably really an act of grace and mercy when we see that it awakened them to what was actually going on in their hearts, to their sin. And it led them to repent, to turn and put their faith in God. Now, theologian Raymond Brown, he says, repentance is literally a change of mind. A change of mind. Now, in the midst of this lethal tragedy, the people started to wake up and change their minds, right? All of a sudden, they're like, oh yeah, okay, it's fine. We'll take this food, <laughs> right? They had a complete change of mind. All of a sudden, God wasn't the enemy. 
all of a sudden, Moses wasn't such a bad intercessor. All of a sudden, oh, hey, we do need you, God. We do need you, Moses, to pray for us, right? They realized all of a sudden that they do need him, that they cannot live without him. So however God chooses to work in your life, whether it's allowing you, like Israel did, to experience a consequence of your own actions to wake you up, right? Or, or maybe he blesses you and he shows you favor and mercy. Either way, either way, what is he doing? He's leading us to repent. He is leading us to turn to him in faith to change our minds about him, to change our minds about ourselves. Ultimately, for salvation. Romans 2 verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I want us to look at a conversation that Jesus had in the New Testament. Jesus once had a conversation with a first century Jewish religious leader. His name was Nicodemus. And he had this conversation about this concept of needing to turn to God or look to God for salvation, to have a new life. So just a little couple snippets here from that conversation. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, as he's having this talk with Nicodemus, he says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus was a little confused here. He didn't really understand that Jesus was speaking illustratively, right? So he was confused, like, how am I going to be born again? How does that work, right? So what Jesus is saying is a metaphor for a new life. Jesus is saying you need a new life. In other words, you need to be saved from that death penalty that you've incurred from your own sin. You need to be saved from the spiritual death that you're heading towards. But Jesus shows in his conversation with Nicodemus that this is by grace. In other words, God, our undeserved salvation is exactly that. It's undeserved. It's by grace. In other words, there's nothing we could do to convince God, hey God, you should save us. Hey, God, you should love me. Look how lovable I am, right? That's not it at all. God is the one who initiates salvation by coming to earth and doing something about it. You see, the problem we all have is that, in a way, you could say we've been bitten by the serpent. We must be saved from the serpent's strike. But how can that be? If you go back to the Garden of Eden, I mentioned it a minute ago. If you go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, we see Satan in the form of a serpent tempting Adam and Eve. They give into it, right? They sin. They rebel against God. They're separated from God because of their sin. That sin problem infiltrated the human race. It's all our problem now. It's by our own choosing. We can't blame Adam and Eve for it. We can't blame God for it. We can't blame Satan for it. You can just blame yourself. We choose but before, before the episode in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden was over, God had something to say to Adam, to Eve, but also to the serpent, to the snake. God spoke to 
this ancient serpent known as Satan, and he said this. In Genesis 3.15, he said, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. Whose offspring? Eve's. In other words, there would be a descendant of Eve one day, and what would he do? He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, God spoke this promise so early on in the history of humanity. In one of the very first episodes recorded, we see God promising to send someone a descendant of Adam and Eve, who would crush the head of this serpent. Now back to John 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus is having that conversation with Nicodemus. Look what he says. Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Christ Jesus was bitten. Christ Jesus was bitten by the serpent. And he bore the deathly poison of our sin so that we could be healed. God provided a way for us to escape death but at the cost of his own death. Jesus became the curse. He became the cursed who was lifted up on a wooden pole so that anyone who is experiencing the pains of death may look, may just look in faith and be healed forever. And when he rose on the third day, the promise of Genesis 3:15 that God promised so long ago became so true when he rose and walked out of a tomb. When he got up, after being dead for three days, he gets up fully alive and crushes the serpent's head forever. So God, you tell me, is it you or is it me? Or is it God? God moves towards us in grace and he crushes the head of the serpent. He is the author and initiator of salvation. And so what do we do? We simply look. It's by faith alone, through faith alone, right? By grace, through faith alone. That's what salvation is. That's the second aspect. We are saved by looking, by looking in faith to the one who took our place, who paid the penalty that you should pay, that I should pay. We are saved from his wrath and his judgment and the fiery serpent forever by simply looking in faith to the one who hung on a wooden pole for us. You know, that's not just a picture to look at. That's not just a picture to look at in your house hanging on a wall or an inspirational quote that makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside. It is literally a matter of life or death if you're looking up or not. 
And I shared this point earlier, but I love what Raymond Brown pointed out about the snake on that pole, right? How the people, they were healed just by looking, right? Instead of God removing the snake somehow or just kind of sweeping them under a big giant rug in heaven, right? Or, or for giving them some kind of medicine or, or maybe some kind of work for them to do to get the snakes out of there and heal themselves. Listen, that's, that's such a great picture of our salvation how there's nothing we can do except simply look to Christ in faith and trust Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it's not your own doing it's not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of work so that no one may boast we have so many false perceptions of salvation and what it is and what it isn't there's something perhaps that we must do to earn it. That there's something we must prove. I mean, so many times in our lives we get caught up and hung up in this performance mindset that salvation is something that we have to work for and we have to prove to God, hey God, look how lovable I am. Look how hard I'm trying. Look at what I'm doing. But see, if, you're, if you get caught up in that performance trap of earning salvation as if it depends on how good or bad you are, that's going to wear you out. It's going to wear you out. It's going to cause so much anxiety in your life. Because how do you know, right? Like, how do you know if you're ever good enough? Like, if you are living life good, right, in a good way, and you think you're doing okay, uh, well, how are you really sure? Like, how do you know if God loves you enough? Or how, if you, how do you know if you love him enough, right? Or let's say that you're failing, right? Let, let's say that you're failing and, and you just feel like you're a, a miserable failure and you've messed up so many times, right? And so you're at the pit of despair. How do you know what to do to get out of that? See, it's not about how good or bad you can be. Your relationship with God is not defined on you. It's defined on the one who hung in your place. It's how good or bad he's been and he's been perfect. He has substituted himself for you. And so on the cross, not only does Jesus take your sin, the deathly poison of your sin, and venom on himself. Listen, there's an exchange taking place. You get the righteousness of God. You get the righteousness of Jesus Christ attributed to you. Really. It's by grace through faith that we can't save ourselves. That only Jesus can save I want to read what Jesus said again in John 3, verse 14. Look at this. Did you know? <laughs> a lot of us know verse 16, but did you know these were the verses leading up to verse 16? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Then later in John 6, verse 40, Jesus said, For this, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks, not everyone who tries really hard, not everyone who impresses other people, not, any, not everyone who's just self-absorbed and trying to just keep their own psychological, you know, impressing themselves and, and just making their own selves feel good. No, 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 no. Jesus says that everyone who looks, on the sun and believes, looking and believing, believes in him should have eternal life and I will 
raise him up on the last day. That means that just as sure as Jesus' resurrection was, it is just as sure for you and your future that the grave that you will be buried in, your body in that grave one day on this earth will bust wide open when Jesus returns and your body will be united with your spirit forever. Yes, that's what we believe, that we are united in Christ's resurrection with him and we will have eternal life. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to save you. And so my question for you is, what are you looking to for salvation? Who are you looking to? What are you looking to on this earth or in this world? Do you believe that Jesus' very own words, that everyone who looks, that everyone who looks will be raised on the last day? Have you looked? Have you really looked up to the cross? Or are you looking down? In other words, is your focus and attention so much on yourself, so much on this earth and what it has that you're trying to squeeze life out of so many things and they just can't deliver? Are you tired of that? Are you tired of that? It's exhausting. Jesus says that whoever comes to him, he will give them rest. If you're exhausted of trying to please God, trying to please yourself, trying to impress God, trying to earn his love, if you're exhausted, fall on your knees before God and say, Lord, I'm sorry that I've been trying to earn my way into your kingdom. I trust what you have done for me. Help me to simply look. Just look up. Just look at the cross. Look at the resurrection of Jesus. It's who you are. It's who he designed you to be. Have you turned your eyes to Jesus? Have you gazed truly in his beautiful truth that he has accomplished for you? You know, if you're already a follower of Jesus, there's a daily reminder that we need here, right? We say this a lot here at Kernan that we need the gospel every day. You see, the gospel is not only the power that saves us, it's also the power that sanctifies us. In other words, the gospel continues to work in our hearts even after we enter into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. We can never lose that relationship, but we have to work on our fellowship and our communion with God. And so the gospel is what keeps us near the Lord in our daily walk, what keeps us loving him and loving others and being appreciative and grateful that, spun, that, that sparks our worship and compels us to honor him with our lives. The gospel is a daily reminder that we need. It's our daily foundation. It's our daily source of strength and truth. So if you're already a follower of Jesus, are you looking up? Are you looking up every day and reminding yourself of who you are in Christ, what he's done for you? That is so important. So where are we looking today? Where is your, where is your attention focused? Who are you facing? Who are you giving yourself to? Are you looking up? Are your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith?